If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of uh, Acts, and Acts chapter 8, and uh, we're looking at, uh, and I appreciated the way Dan uh, highlighted this at the beginning uh, of the, the service tonight, that it's kind of like sitting watching old movies and getting uh, snippets, and as we've been going through these songs tonight, uh, you know, how do we get from uh, Jesus and his honor and his glory and power forever and ever in the name, how do we get from there to here? And, and that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about uh, these little snippets which God has put together in order for us to get an understanding of how the church has got to where it is today. And what's the power behind the church? And, and, and what's the power in the name of Jesus? And uh, Luke is doing that in, in just remarkably different ways. He's, he's looking at um, um, small little prayer meetings that take place. He's looking at mass conversions of 3,000 people all at once. He's looking at sermons that take place in a, in a really public place. He's talking about what's going on in the homes of, of these people as they come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about not only the successes that they're having, but he's talking about how some are getting beaten up and some are getting thrown in jail because they trust in Jesus. He's talking about others um, who... Who, 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 who trust in Jesus to the point of they lose their life because they are so committed to Jesus and the testimony of Jesus Christ and telling others about, the, about Jesus that their life doesn't even matter to them. And then he, he's talking about individuals as well. And so we've looked at, you know, seven men that were chosen and uh, we've looked at Peter who was preaching and uh, we've looked at a few that were thrown in jail. And then last week we started looking at a man named Philip and how Philip had this uh, this amazing opportunity to share the good news of the gospel, and he was confronted with a magician, and, and how that all played out. And so we're just picking it up where Luke has left off from last week with Philip and the magician, except this Sunday, we're looking at Philip and an Ethiopian. And we're going to work our way through this, because there's a, a, a lot of things that I think are important from this passage in Luke chapter 8, and, uh, or, or Acts chapter 8. And we'll just start, if you've got your Bibles... Um, and I'm just going to read some verses and then make comments about them as we go along. In verse 26, um, we, we read there that an angel of the Lord, and again, here is this interplay between, between the spiritual world and the physical world. We, we, we don't just live in a world which is what we can see and touch. So the Bible tells us that angels were regularly sent out by God to communicate commands and issues from God. So an angel um, of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, um, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now that's a really bizarre thing for the angel of the Lord to say. Because if you were here last week, um, you, you might have remembered that Philip had gone, come to a place, a, a city called Samaria. And there was this amazing revival taking place. People were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Miracles were taking place. Demons were being cast out of people. And so there was a good thing going on. And Philip was the point person in this. And God says to him, Philip, I want you to leave here and I want you to go to a desert road. I mean, wow, that's bizarre. But if there's anything that I think that we ought to learn from this passage and learn from the scripture is that God's ways are not our ways. And there may be times this week where you're doing something and you're doing something really important and it might not be sharing the gospel and seeing people come to faith, but you might be engaged in something really important and God will speak to your heart. Um, maybe an angel will come to you and he'll say, leave what you're doing, go to the middle of nowhere. In other words, we need to cultivate a sensitivity to God speaking to us and we need to cultivate an obedience to God. And if he says, stop what you're doing now and go there, we need to go. 
So that's the, the, sort of the first thing that I see about Philip. And then there's more going on to the scene, though. And it says that he arose and he went. And then the next thing in verse 27, it says, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So while Philip is leaving Samaria and going to this desert road, because he's listening to God, something else is unfolding in the city of Jerusalem. And there is this, this really important Ethiopian guy who has come to Jerusalem and he's there to worship. Now, he's not worshiping the true God. He may be seeking. He might be trying to find God, but he doesn't know who the real God is yet. So he might be engaged in religion. He might have a little bit of truth, but he's worshiping God. And as he's in the city of Jerusalem, he happens to buy a book. Well, in those days, it was scrolls. So he happened to go by the used scroll dealership guy, and he picked up a scroll. And this was a scroll of Isaiah. And so if, if he's like me, I get a book, and I'm even reading a book on the way home in the car. And I was reading one home yesterday, driving down the island highway, reading this book, because I couldn't wait to get home to read it. And so Philip, though, had a driver, or the Ethiopian had a driver at least. So here's Philip. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's reading this scroll on Isaiah, and he's driving down the road in his chariot. So, were you the passenger, Paul, or were you actually reading while you were driving? I was reading while I was driving. <laughs> actually, I had a, an accident while I was doing the same thing over in the mainland, but nobody knows about that. Um, now you do. Uh, anyhow, so we've got God speaking to, to Philip, drop what you're doing and go to the middle of nowhere. And we've got God um, talking to this Ethiopian guy by bringing him to a place of worship, by helping him buy a book that he's never read before and he doesn't understand. And, he sa- and, and so this guy is just leaving there and he's going back home and he's reading this scroll. I don't know what, what's going on in, in, in Philip's mind as he's standing on the road he's probably kind of walking back and forth thinking well, what am I doing here what am I doing here and then all of a sudden he must have seen some kind of a dust cloud and it's this chariot now we, we, we might have in our minds a Ben-Hur kind of chariot you know where he's he's the only guy in the chariot and there's four horses in front of him and he's flying down the road and well that's not what's going on here this is like more like the Ford Escalade or Ford Escort sorry Ford Escort you know and it doesn't really have that many horsepower and there's got room for a driver and there's got room for more people and so it's kind of just plucking down the road. But there's a little bit of dust that's being kicked up behind it. And you read in verse, um, verse 29, And the Spirit says to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. You see what God has done here? He's made this divine appointment. He's taken Philip away from something that's really important to Philip and to the kingdom of God. And he says, Go over here. And he's been working in an Ethiopian's life and he's worked in his life, so the timing is just going to be perfect, and they're going to meet up on the road, and all of a sudden God would say, now go talk to that person that's having a cup of coffee in Tim Hortons, or go sit beside that person that's on coffee bake at work, or go, 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 go walk over to that person that, at, that, that is at break at school and just take a couple minutes and chat with them. In other words, God works these amazing divine appointments in our life, and we need to be sensitive those, to those sorts of things. And so, I, and I picture this, it, it can't be a Ben-Hur kind of chariot because Philip runs alongside the, the chariot, and this is kind of a comical story, but it's true, and so he's running along the story, and the guy is reading, and in those days they read out loud, and so he's reading out loud, and I can just picture this, a guy sitting in his chariot reading out loud, 
and a guy running beside him, and he goes, hey, buddy, what are you reading? And I'm sure the Ethiopian kind of was, was sort of strange. And, uh, and so they have this conversation, and then, and then Philip says to him, do you understand what you are reading? How I wish that in my studies sometimes there would be somebody that would just show up and say, Paul, do you understand what you're reading? What's that? Well, I'm driving. Yeah, that would be helpful. With my seatbelt on, of course, uh, and not on my cell phone. Um, but it's not illegal to read a book. Just, it's illegal to talk. It's illegal. Is there a law against it? The law is only against talking on a cell phone. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, we're getting into trouble here. Uh, let's get back to the Bible. Forget me. <laughs> and so... So he says to the guy, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And I love this. The openness there. How can I understand unless somebody tells me? Loved ones, you know, we, we presume that people are cold to the gospel. We presume that people don't want to hear about the Bible. We presume that people don't want to hear explanations about the scripture. I think the exact opposite is true. The Bible says that oh, lift up your eyes for the harvest is white. In other words, it's ready to be reaped. People are hungry to know about this, this vacuum that's inside of them, this, this God-shaped hole in them that they haven't been able to fill yet, and they want to know the truth. And so he says to him, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? And he invites Philip to jump up into the chariot with him, and, and Philip begins this amazing conversation with him. And he happens to be reading Isaiah 53, which is a passage about the death of our Lord. He's reading a passage about one who offered his life for other people. He's reading a passage about one who sacrificed himself, who, who paid a penalty that he didn't have to pay, who took on the sins of others and freed them from their own sinfulness. And, and, and he's saying, who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this suffering servant? What injustice did he commit? And so Philip had this amazing opportunity to take some time with this fella and to share with him the good news of Jesus Christ. To share with them how, how God had made this amazing world for us to live in. And that it was all perfect. And at the end of it all, God said it was good. And how God placed a man and a woman in the garden. And he gave them all this beautiful garden. But he set up one guideline or one law for them. Not to eat of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of, the, of knowledge of good and evil. Is that right? Yes, it's the right tree. And how they were tempted and they ate it. And the moment that they ate of it, their eyes were opened and they were flooded over with sinfulness. And, and from then on, the world has been marred by the effects and the impacts of sin. And that's what creates the trouble in the world. That's what creates the problem in the world. That's what was creating a vacuum in the whole of the heart of this Ethiopian, this Ethiopian. And he was aware of the destructive nature of sin. He was aware of the fact that that it was pervasive and it was all around. He was aware of the fact that it was terminal and that people would all die. But then Philip had the opportunity to say, but God had a plan. That God had a Savior. And we, we talked about, tell the world that there is a Savior. And this is what Philip is doing. He's saying, I want to tell you about this man in Isaiah 53. I want to tell you that he's God. I want to tell you that he, he came down to this earth. I want to tell you that I've heard him. And I'm sure Philip was one of these guys who probably heard Jesus as he preached probably in Jerusalem. I want to tell you about him. I want to tell you about his life. I want to tell you about how perfect he was. I want to tell you how, how wonderful he was. I want to tell you how he attracted people. And I want to tell you what, what happened to him, that, that people hated him and they killed him. And, and we thought it was all done for and we thought we would never see him again. But on the third day, God raised him up because he was, his sacrifice for sin was accepted by God. He says, I want to tell you about him. 
And the clear implication is that the end of this conversation, however it was, that the Ethiopian said, I want him to be my Lord and Savior. And so he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And you say, well, how do, how do you know that? And we, we come to, 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 to verse, um, what is it, verse 36. And it seems kind of abrupt, but it's not abrupt when you consider what we've already been reading in the book of Acts. And in verse 36, he says to him, um, see, there is water. What prevents me from being baptized? You see, in the book of Acts, repentance and baptism were almost synonymous events. That, that, that the moment somebody was saved, they were baptized. We, they, there wasn't this space and this gap of time between baptism and repentance. That, that as soon as somebody repented of their sins, then they were baptized. And that the two almost went together like hand in glove. And so for me, when he says, there's water, what prevents me from being baptized? That's another way of saying, and he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior at that very moment. And so they stopped the chariot and they jumped out of the chariot and and they took him down and they baptized him. And I, I just want to spend the rest of our time talking about baptism. And I think how critical it is and how important it is that we understand the place of water baptism in the Christian church. And it, it sort of troubles me that we've left this aside or that we don't think it's important or that we delay it for so long. When in the scripture I don't see anywhere where there's this delay attached with baptism. And we, if we were to jump back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, at the end of this sermon, the people were just cut to the quick. Um, that means they were convicted. That means they felt bad about their sins. And they were feeling, they were worried about what, 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 what should we do? And they say to Peter, what shall we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. There was no repent and, and then let's, let's take a couple months or let's take a couple years or let's take a couple centuries and then be baptized. It was repent and be baptized. And I think it says, if I'm not mistaken, and I better go back and just make sure, um, where it says, um, and in that day, um, where is it here? 238. Um, yeah, so then they, who, the, whoever received this word were baptized. And there were added to the church that day 3,000 souls. There was one big, massive baptism that took place that day in Jerusalem as people responded in a saving way as evidenced through repentance and demonstrated through baptism in water. And so we see that, that Peter tied those two things right together, repentance and baptism. You know, there are some today who say that baptism really isn't an important thing or it's really a minor issue in the church and you shouldn't make such a big deal of it. Well, I don't, I don't agree with that. As I read through the New Testament I find that baptism is a big deal. I find that baptism is not a minor thing, that it's a major thing. And just ask some of the people during the Reformation period who, 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 who practiced baptism at the risk of perse persecution and martyrdom. To them, it wasn't a small issue to be baptized for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, it, it, why is baptism important? Well, I'll tell you why baptism is important. It's the same way it's important as the Lord's Tupper, Supper. Because baptism is connected to the gospel. Baptism is a way of demonstrating the saving work of Jesus Christ that has been applied to your life. It's a way of saying, I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a way of saying, I believe that he died for me and that he raised me up with him. And the importance of baptism is seen like in so many places. In the gospel, 
the emphasis is, is really on the command to be baptized. And you come to the end of Matthew um, and you read verse 28 and, and Jesus commands his disciples, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. Mark puts it this way, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will not be condemned. So, so the emphasis in the Gospels is on the fact that Jesus was baptized and that the disciples were to go and, and make disciples as evidenced in, as, as they came to faith, baptizing them. So then we come to the, to the book of Acts. And as we read in the book of Acts, the theology of baptism is not developed, just the practice of baptism. And if you have time, read through the book of Acts or take a concordance or look at the back of your Bible, all the references to baptism or being baptized. And you see that through the book of Acts, this is a constant practice of the church. People were baptized. They were saved. They were baptized. They were saved. They were baptized. They repented of their sins. They were baptized. That was just what the church did. The two went together. And then you come to the epistles. Um, you know, from 1 Corinthians sort of to the end, and, and where you find baptism talked about, it explains its theological meaning. It gives us the teaching behind baptism. It gives us the symbolism behind baptism. And so we find that water baptism is, 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 is from the Gospels to the end, something that is commanded, something that is practiced, and something that is explained. So why be baptized? Because it was the example set by Jesus. Because it is a command to be obeyed, because it is the pattern of the early church, and because it is tied to an understanding of the gospel. Take a couple of minutes and just unpack a few of those. The meaning of baptism. What does baptism mean? Well, the word itself, baptizo, and, and its various forms, its basic meaning is to immerse, to dip or to plunge or to cause to be dipped. Martin Luther said, I would have those who are baptized to be entirely immersed as the word imports and the mystery signifies. John Calvin said, the word baptized signifies to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. John Wesley says, buried with him, alluding to baptism by immersion according to the custom of the first church. We read of, of Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. And notice how it describes it. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water. The implication of that seems to be clearly that there was enough water for him to go down into. And so it says that Jesus went up out of the water. In John chapter 3, verse 23, we read there that John was also baptizing in Aam near Salem because water there was plentiful and people were coming to be baptized. Why was, water for, why was it necessary to have plentiful water? So they could immerse them because it goes with the symbolism of the New Testament because it follows the meaning of the word baptism. In Acts chapter 8, 39, where we talked about the, the Ethiopian, here it says, and when they came up out of the water... Again, the implication is that, it, that in baptism, there is, a, there is an immersion. There is going down into the water, and there is a coming up out of the water. And so these passages, I think, remind us and demonstrate to us that the normal procedure in baptism is, is, is going down into the water and coming up out of the water because water is plentiful there. That is the normal use of the word baptism. It, it means immersion. I can remember... 
as a boy, being a preacher's kid. And one of my jobs was to, um, to, to, to be involved in the baptism service with my dad. And I was the curtain puller. And back in those days, we had a, we had a baptismal tank that was um, at the back of the church here. And, and there was a little tiny ledge that you had to walk along. And so my dad was the pastor there. And I'd come up over the stairs and I'd lean on my dad. And I'd walk across the, the back of the baptismal tank. And there was like a cubby hole about this big and about that wide. And you'd stand there and you'd pull a curtain. And you'd pull a curtain because when, um, when particularly the ladies were baptized, the robes would stick to them. And they had bathing suits on and all that sort of stuff. But modesty and all that kind of thing. And so as soon as they were gone down and they kind of like... And they'd walk out of the baptismal tank, and the next person would come in. And so that was my job, um, to be the baptismal person. And uh, it was one of these um, baptismal nights. It was one of the most, um, sort of, it was like any other one. It was uneventful. But one fateful night, we had a few people that had come in, and uh, they had gone down, they had been baptized, they had pulled the curtain, they had gone out, and they, the next person had come in. And after, I think, two people had been baptized, I'm standing there in, in my little cubbyhole, and out of the corner of my eye, comes the biggest person I have ever seen in my life. And for a little 11-year-old boy, you're just like, whoa. And, and so all this kind of stuff was going through my mind, like, this is, this, what's going to happen here? And I'm sure that if anyone could see my mind and read into my heart, they'd think, well, that little boy is just out of his mind. But I had a job to do, and my job was to, to, to pull this curtain, and my dad had a job to do, and that was to baptize this person by immersion, get them down in the water, get them up out of the water. And I didn't worry. My dad was a pro, of course. He had done this many times. He knew just what to do. And so, of course, this, um, this lady, she's down in the, in the tank. And, and from the rest of the congregation, you could see from about the shoulders up. Uh, but the choir was on the platform like this, and so they had a, a full-on view of what was going on in the baptismal tank. And uh, 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 as we're sitting there... Uh, <laughs> This is, this, this, this is, for me, it's still as vivid in my mind. Um, so this person, this big person, apart from the choir, had slipped in relatively unnoticed, apart from the flood tide of the rising water in the baptismal tank. And again, you had to be there to see what was going on. I still hadn't moved, though, and I couldn't because I was just fixated on what is going to happen here. I don't remember the testimony that she gave. I was distracted. How is my dad going to do this? I don't remember the prayer that my dad prayed because I was just thinking, how is my dad going to do this? I don't remember the formula that he said at the end of the baptism. All I could think is, how is my dad going to do this? And so all these thoughts are going in my mind, and without warning, down she goes. And apart from the sudden surge of water, all things appeared to be normal. And I'm still watching this. And then I started to see my dad struggle. And he's, he's fighting with this lady, and he's got her down. And then I see him kind of bend down like this, and and he's, he's trying to get some leverage underneath the lady. And, and even, I, sh- I should have said person. I gave it away. Uh, anyhow, and, and he's down under the water. And this has been going on for, it seemed like ages for a little boy. And then all I can hear is, shut the curtain! Shut the curtain! <laughs> and, and I'm just in shock. Anyhow, we eventually got the curtain um, shut. But the reason I tell you that is just because I practice immersion. <laughs> and I believe it's, Im- it's important that we immerse. Um, but let me say this, that, um, you know, it's not, uh, I can bend the rules on that, and let me tell you why. Um, when I pastored in Broadway Church, we had, um, I don't know why they designed it like this, but they had the baptismal tank way up at the top of the church, and in fact, the choir sat underneath the baptismal tank, 
And there was probably about 35, 40 steps in a narrow little pathway up to the top of this church. And it was hilarious because they'd, they'd just inevitably fill the tank up too full. And when they'd <laughs> baptize people, water would come down on the people in the choir. Uh, and so there was a mass baptism. Um, but anyhow, I'm getting distracted. Um, um, why, don't we, why don't we always have to immerse people? Uh, there was an instance at Broadway where we had a, a lady who was a paraplegic. And not only would it have been impossible for us to get her up the stairs into the tank, but it would have been extraordinarily dangerous for us to have baptized her. So while this is the normal pattern of baptism, it doesn't mean that, that we hold to it. And if, if you're baptized with sprinkling as an adult because of health reasons, that, that is somehow invalid because we still explain the symbolism behind it. But baptism is by immersion normally. And, and, and then there's the symbolism behind baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of something that has already taken place within you. Repentance speaks, when you repent of your sins, that speaks of your own personal identification with Jesus Christ. But when you are baptized, that is a way of of, of demonstrating to others your identification with Christ. Um, and so we, we, we've got to remember that, 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 that baptism away is a way of demonstrating to others of what has happened to you internally, of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so in that sense, then, baptism symbolizes the washing away of your sins. I think that's one of the beautiful symbols in baptism. In Acts chapter twenty-two, sixteen, it says, and, and why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When you are baptized, what you are doing is when you're going down in the water and you're coming up out of the water, you're symbolizing the washing away of your sins. There is nothing salvific. There is no saving value to baptism. But it's what it symbolizes. And it's obedience to a command. So the first thing it symbolizes is that your sins are washed away. The second thing that it symbolizes is that you are now united with Christ. And we find that in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, so when, you, when you're baptized, when you go down into the water, what you are symbolizing in that is that you have died with Christ. That you, have, that you have died to sin in your life. That you have died, that, you have, that, that, that all the guff and all the garbage in your life, it's done away with. And when you come up out of the water, we're symbolizing your resurrection with Christ and that now you are walking in newness of life. Now you are walking in the power of Christ. Now you are no longer constrained by sin in your life. And so baptism is a way of identifying um, our, our union with Christ. And thirdly, baptism is a way of symbolizing our, the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. In Galatians chapter 3, 27, it says, For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ really means that we have come under the lordship of Christ. And so when you are baptized and you come up out of the water, what you are saying is, I am now a follower of Christ. I am now a servant of Christ. I am now a slave of Christ. He is now my Lord and Master. So all of that is, is wrapped up in the symbolism of baptism. And so baptism is, is then, to put it another way, it's an act of confession. Confessing Christ is a necessary part of coming to him, as Romans chapter 10, verse 9 tells us. And to publicly submit to baptism is a declaration of that faith that you have in Jesus Christ. 
And so the Bible talks about baptism as being an act of confession, as being a way of saying, yes, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. He has saved me, he has cleansed me, he has raised me, and now I am his follower. It's also, though, as I've said, an act of identification with Christ. As Galatians says, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so when you're baptized, what you're saying is, is I can't do this on my own. I don't want to do this on, on my own anymore. That I want to do this in the life of Christ, in the power of Christ. And after all, isn't that what the book of Acts has been about? We're talking about, in the book of Acts, is what Jesus continues to do in the hearts and lives of his followers. And so when you're baptized, um, you're, 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 you're identifying with Christ in that way. And finally, it's an act of submission to Christ. This is expressed simply in our obedience to him. Because baptism is a command. And so when we are baptized, we are expressing our obedience to follow him. Who should be baptized? Baptism is for believers, as I understand the New Testament. The baptism is for all of those who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord in their lives and has repented of their sins. It's as simple as that. It's no more complicated than that. It's something that, 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 that follows on the heels of, a, of an intellectual, of, a, uh, of an emotional, of a willful acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent and be baptized. It follows faith in Jesus Christ. And because uh, the God of the Bible has revealed himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, because, because um, God is involved in planning our salvation, because Jesus is involved in, in, in making our salvation possible, because the Holy Spirit is involved in applying Christ's work to us, we baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Because all three uh, of, of, of the members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. So baptism is absolutely important. Here is Charles Spurgeon's account of his baptism in the River Lark in, in Cambridgeshire. He says, It was a new experience to me, never having seen a baptism before, and I was afraid of making some mistake. The wind blew down the river with a cutting blast as my turn came to wade into the flood. But after I had walked a few steps and noted the people on the ferry boat and in boats on either shore, I felt as if heaven, the earth and hell might all gaze upon me. For I was not ashamed there and then to own myself a follower of the Lamb. My timidity was washed away. It floated down the river into the sea and must have been devoured by the fishes. For I have never felt anything of the kind since. Baptism loosed my tongue, and from that day it had never been quiet. I lost a thousand fears in that river lark and found that in keeping his commandments there is great reward. It was a thrice happy day to me. God be praised for the preserving goodness which allows me to write of it with such delight so long afterwards. That's the testimony of Charles Spurgeon, of just what baptism meant for him and what it meant for him to identify with Jesus Christ, and how in that act of identification, it gave him boldness to be a man that proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we um, think about uh, sort of the book of Acts and, and pick up little points, if, if you're, to, you're here tonight and you've never been baptized, and yet you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would ask you, why not? Why haven't you been baptized? There is no reason in the world, according to Scripture, why you shouldn't be baptized. Baptism is for all of those who have repented of their sins before Jesus.